For the past five weeks here at Gateway, we've been exploring different disciplines of simplicity on our way to finding Jesus. We've looked at how our stuff, schedules, intake, consumption of information, and our mistaken beliefs are about our identities obscure our view of Christ. Let me tell you some of the things that I've learned over the last five weeks. It is possible to remove four huge bags of clothing from my closet and still have something to wear. It is really true that I have time for what I want to have time. So please, if you ever hear me saying that I don't have time for personal devotions, remind me of the three hours of television I watch every day. Now, when it comes to not spending anything for an entire week, it wasn't as difficult as I thought it would be. Although by the end of the week, pretty much the only things left in our refrigerator were condiments and beverages. Now, don't tell this next one to my boss, but I am a more productive worker when I resist the pull of Facebook and personal email. Imagine that. And even though my head knows who I am in Christ, Sometimes my heart needs to be reminded of who I am. Now that I've cleared away some of the things that clutter my life and fight for my attention, I can see Jesus more clearly. I am also reminded that he is really always there for me. He will never leave me or forsake me, but sometimes I'm just too busy and too overwhelmed and distracted to realize that he is involved constantly with my life. As we move into this last week of Lent and look towards Easter, let us remember that Jesus is more than enough for us. Let us be still and know that he is God. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the work you have done in my life over the last five weeks. Show me how I can continue to simplify and clear the clutter from my life. Fill the spaces I empty with your spirit. Help me to see that you are constantly working in and around me, even when I don't see your movement. In your name I pray. Amen. Father, I pray that would be the cry of our hearts this morning, that we would surrender to King Jesus. I pray that you would break down defenses and all that sets itself up against you in our hearts. I pray that you would pass through all of our distractions this morning, that we'd be able to be with you, hear from you. Honestly, Lord, we surrender to you this morning willingly, but we also recognize that the day is coming when we will surrender willingly or not. And make us mindful of that. Help us to see you as you are and to receive that. In the strong name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for coming this morning, especially if you're visiting with us. Thanks for being here today. This is typically a very low Sunday for us around here in Northern Virginia because this is the beginning of spring break, and it's really, really fortunate for those who decided to get away because did you hear we're expecting a big snow at the end of this week? Anyway... Just kidding. You were scared. You thought that was real. Today is when the Christian church 
traditionally celebrates Palm Sunday. We don't always go over the Palm Sunday story, but this morning we're going to. There are a couple of powerful messages in the Palm Sunday event. In fact, the Palm Sunday event, more than anything else, communicates to us two of the the most basic beliefs of Christianity. And yet, even though it's a most basic belief, a most basic Sunday, if you will, our time together, our conversation today is really primarily for those of you who have already made the decision to be a Christ follower, and you've already decided to jump all the way in. Now, if you're on the fence, if you feel personally skeptical this morning or distant from a connection with God, I'm really glad you're here. I just wanted you to know up front, today's message is mostly for folks who have jumped all in and have made a connection with God, and I'll explain why at the end. If you step outside of the normal daily routine of life for the average Jew living in the time of Jesus, there were two big picture features of life which all of them had in common, and really which were the background noise. It was behind the scenes of all of their emotional and spiritual hopes and dreams and desires and concerns. So the two big picture features of life for the average Jew living in the time of Jesus, number one, was their Jewishness. They were very aware of their ethnic identity and their history, their identity as the people of God, the people of the book. So they believed that God had written the uh, Old Testament books. They were particularly attached to the Pentateuch, and uh, those are the first five books. that They called them the books of Moses. Their belief that God had been a part of their history and had moved among them in significant ways and would again. So this was a significant feature of the life of an average Jew living in the time of Jesus. A second significant feature, of course, was the Roman occupation of their land and of most of the rest of the known world at that point. And these two realities were often in conflict with one another. And and there were three major categories for how they responded to those two realities, their Jewishness and the Roman occupation of their land. There were those, first of all, who rejected Roman rule. And these, at the time and in history, would be known as the zealots, most of them. There were others, but the zealots, they rejected Roman occupation and they tried actively at various times to overthrow it. They, in fact, were actively looking for a hero who would come and help them in this effort, lead them, a military hero who would come and lead them in the effort to overthrow Roman occupation. Then there were those who largely ignored Roman rule, the way many of us, most of the year, would like to ignore our own government, but even more so. They ignored the fact that there was a Roman occupation, and they went on with their lives, and they married, and they had kids, and they tried to seek God. This would be almost all of the Pharisees. You read about them in the New Testament. And many of the Sadducees, they just chose to ignore Roman occupation. And then there were those who were complicit with Roman occupation. They assimilated to the Romans. This was especially true of certain rulers. For instance, Herod, who was uh, ruling at the time of Jesus' birth, he claimed Jewish origin. Now, the Pharisees rejected that claim, but there were many in various levels of government sanctioned by the Romans, and their paycheck came from Rome, and they were complicit with Roman rule, and then certain other officials, like tax collectors. For instance, one of Jesus' first followers, Matthew, was a tax collector, and he would have been complicit in Roman rule, and if you were here a few weeks ago, you heard John Malola talk about that and explain that. All of these people would have 
held beliefs, or they would have at least known the teaching about the coming of the promised Messiah. All of them knew that he was coming, at least in theory, to establish God's kingdom, and nearly all of them would have believed that this meant a new world-dominating kingdom of Israel. So they knew the Messiah was coming, and they believed that Messiah would come and redo the reign of David and more. Some believed this, some were skeptical, some rejected this idea, but all would have known about it anyway. So given this background, what did they think of the events of Palm Sunday? I'll read the account for us in a moment. But what did they think of Jesus coming into Jerusalem the way he did around 30 B.C., a week before his execution? What did this story mean for them and to them? And what does it mean for us? And it's somewhat surprising that it really meant to them and for us almost exactly the same thing. It meant two things. So if you miss everything else, don't miss these. This is the giddy-up today. There are two basic principles of the Christian faith. Number one, this account meant clearly, more clearly to them, and we'll explain that in a minute, more clearly to them even than it does to us, that God is involved with us. God is part of our story. Number two, it meant that Jesus is king over everything and everyone. So, let me read you this morning the account as Matthew has it, from Matthew chapter 21. And if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Matthew 21, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 16 of Matthew chapter 21. It will be on the screen for you, and as we often do here at Gateway, let's go old school, and can we stand out of reverence for God's Word? Matthew 21, 1 through 16. This is the account that we, at least in English, in the English church, call Palm Sunday because the, you know, they laid palms on his way as he was going into Jerusalem. Matthew 21, 1 through 16. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. I suppose Jesus has already made arrangements for this, himself or through someone else. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, and the prophet is Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted from Psalm 118 that we read this morning, Hosanna, which means in Hebrew, save, or the Lord saves. It became an exclamation of praise over the years. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee, parentheses, that you've heard about. You know, the rock star has come to Jerusalem. And look at the crowd, look at the energy. Do you think? Jesus entered the temple area, and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. 
And that buying and selling had begun as a mechanism to support temple sacrifices, but turned into an incredible profit-making merchant exercise. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It's written, he said to them, and now he quotes Isaiah, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Blind and the lame came to him at the temple while he was there, and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. We'll see in a moment how significant that is. Have you never read, and now he quotes Psalm 8, from the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Okay, may God bless and open up his word to us this morning. You can be seated. God is involved with us. That's part of the significance of this event. It would have been for them, and it is for us. In certain places, in fact, in the Old Testament, God told his people key pieces of the story before it happened. And in other places, he gave them pretty dramatic hints. For example, in our text, quotes Zechariah 9, a hint that one day the king will come, the king will come, and he'll ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. In Psalm 118, that's really a, a victory psalm. That's a, a, the responsive reading that Jordan did with us this morning would have been said antiphonally, they think, as a, a triumphant king was returning from battle, perhaps over the Philistines or who knows who. He would have been returning into Jerusalem and he would have been outside the city gate and he would have said, open for me the gates of righteousness. And inside they would have opened and they would have said the second part of Psalm 118. And as he enters in before the king, they would have said, Hosanna! Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Then Jesus comes. And all of these pieces of evidence and all of these hints begin to come to life. And for those who have eyes to see him all over the country, but especially in Galilee, they begin to say, wow, could it be? Could it be that all of this stuff is true? Could it be that what we've heard is true? Uh, this past week, on Monday, I was eating lunch, and I turned on the television, and there was a movie on, which I had to watch a few minutes of because it had two of the greatest actresses of our day, Hilary Duff and Heather Locklear, and evidently from the description on the TV guide and from the few minutes I saw, Heather Locklear is Hilary Duff's mother, and Heather Locklear has been looking for you know, the perfect man who she thinks doesn't exist, and she gets her heart broken, and she moves. And Hillary put upon Hillary Duff, you know, the teenager, has had it and she doesn't want to move anymore. So she decides to cook up a scheme and she's going to send emails to her mother from a friend of hers' computer called the address Brooklyn guy or something like that. And she meets the uncle of the good friend and he's a super nice guy and he's engaged but he seems like the perfect guy, so Hillary begins to ask him for advice on what to do to her mother to convince her that the perfect guy is actually her secret admirer. Meanwhile, it's all a lie. Now, 
I'm going to step way out on a limb here, but I'm going to suggest by the end of that movie that engagement didn't work out and somehow he ends up meeting Heather Locke here. I know that's a radical thought, but that's just where I'm thinking it, this movie might have gone. The thing is, this is kind of the situation the ancient Jews are in. They've gotten letters from the king. And they've even, in a couple of instances, gotten a phone call. You know, they've had more of a presence of the great king. And then he shows up. And it is underscore bold, italicized, exclamation point, God is involved with us, and He always has been. You mean hundreds, even thousands of years of belief have been accurate? We were right? Really? God is involved with us. Have you heard the proverbial saying, religion is about man reaching up for God. Christianity is about God reaching down to man. Religion is about man reaching up for God. Christianity is about God reaching down to man. It's true. Our faith is rooted in history, our history. God is involved with us. He came to the planet. He's real, and He involved Himself in our story, in our history. God is involved with us. That's a big part of what Palm Sunday means. I've said this before here on Sunday morning, when we've read the Apostles' Creed in some instance. The Apostles' Creed begins, you all would be familiar with it if we had it on the screen. The Apostles' Creed begins with a great statement about God the Father and Jesus the Son and then the Holy Spirit. And then pretty abruptly, you know, in in explanation of Jesus, they mention the Virgin Mary. And you're, okay, that's pretty august company for the Virgin Mary. But okay, you know, she was significant and she was Jesus' mother, the Virgin Mary. And then the next phrase mentions Pontius Pilate. Of all people. I mean, not that it's son. Pontius Pilate prays the Father, Son, Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ magnified. He was killed by Pontius Pilate. And they said that as part of the Apostles' Creed because it rooted it in history, in our story. This happened. So I've said many times before, our faith rises and falls on an historic fact. The fact may be, you may disbelieve it. It might never have happened. We all might be fools, but this is not a way of life. This isn't a mindset. This isn't a set of religious principles. Our faith rises and falls on the death and resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ. That's what we declare God is involved with our story, our history, our planet, our lives. Me! God is concerned with me and involves Himself with me. That's what Palm Sunday means. There are many applications for this. Let me give you one. Among other things, this means that there is more, much more, infinitely more. There's more going on in us and around us than our problems and our concerns and our worries. I really love what... The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. At the end of chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians, he has one of my favorite paragraphs in the entire Bible. Therefore, Paul says, we don't lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away. Can anybody testify? Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly 
We are being renewed day by day. Listen to this. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, what is unseen is eternal. You know what I imagine? I imagine one of my boys when they were like 10 months, sitting on a high chair at the kitchen table, and Diane and I are trying to eat dinner, and they're moving food around on the top of their high chair. You know the scene. If you have kids that are very young, you'll be very familiar with this. And at a certain point, you know, they've either smashed the food into their face or they've spread it out all over the floor. So now you pour Cheerios on top of the high chair. And this is awesome because, number one, they like the Cheerios, and number two, they like to play with the Cheerios. So you put a, you know, a half a dozen Cheerios, a couple go into the mouth and down the shirt, and then a couple go on the floor, and then there's the last Cheerio that they're chasing around the top of the high chair. And accidentally, you know, even though my children were incredibly coordinated, so I threw that in for you, Jordan, even though they were, the Cheerio goes off the edge of the high chair and onto the floor, and then it's drama. I lost my plaything and my food. I wanted that Cheerio, and they're inconsolable. And, you know, Diane was the master of distraction. It worked for some of ours. It didn't for others. It was, a, it was incredible. This is a side point. But our youngest, Graham, was amazing. Graham would just be, ah! He was the most violent crier. And Diane would go to him and say, Graham, look out the window. He'd go, ah! It was over instantly. I imagine Graham in the middle of his conniption fit because his Cheerio has fallen on the floor. And I also realize that he's not going to be bothered at all by that in 15 minutes. Two weeks later, <laughs> it will be less than a memory. 25 years later, our light and momentary troubles are like a Cheerio on a 10-month-old's high chair. All of our financial concerns, our physical concerns, our worries, our relational concerns are light and momentary and achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them because God is involved with us. I've got to read you one more thing. I'm sorry. The Apostle Paul says, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs those light and momentary troubles. I want you to listen to some of the testimony of this guy, Paul. Paul says later at one point, in this same letter to this same group of people, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. Light and momentary? He's not even mentioning the stomach flu. And yet, the Apostle Paul has his eyes fixed in such a direction, knowing that God is involved with us, that all of these are light and momentary and achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them. 
God is involved with us. The second thing they would have known from this Palm Sunday incident and the thing that we know as well is that Jesus is king of everything and everyone. He does three things in this passage, in this event, that reveal, really, his kingship. The first thing that he does is he rides on a donkey, actually the colt of a donkey, into the city. They place a garment on top of the donkey, and then they place garments in front of him and branches cut from palm trees as he rides into the city of Jerusalem. Why does he do this? He gives them very specific instructions. I want you to go into the city, find a donkey, there'll be a colt there, bring the colt to me. If anyone asks, you tell them this is for the Lord. He's never done this before. He's never entered into any city or village riding on a donkey. He's intentionally fulfilling Zechariah 9 and 10. Jesus knows well what he's doing. Zechariah 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Daughter of Zion, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Righteous and having salvation. Gentle, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus was intentionally signaling to them, I am the king that you've been waiting for. But the king over who? Is this the king just over the daughters of Jerusalem? Well, if we continue that Zechariah passage, which Jesus doesn't continue and quote, but he knows it, and he knows what he's referencing. After verse 9 comes verse 10, and it reads like this, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. There's going to be no need for it anymore. No need for war because I've come. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. All nations will be brought under His kingship. This great king who's going to come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey will be king over everything and everyone. And Jesus announces that here. All people will ultimately fall down and worship the king who represents God. I'm going to use you, God told them through Zechariah. I'm going to move through you, but my story will involve all people. First of all, Jesus rides on a donkey into Jerusalem. Secondly, he declares God's house as a house of prayer. He goes in and purifies and establishes God's house as a house of prayer. And this fulfills a prophecy from Isaiah chapter 56. And I have to read you more than Jesus quotes here. Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 8. Listen to this. And foreigners will bind themselves to the Lord to serve Him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship Him. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, who hold fast to My covenant. These I will bring to My holy mountain and give them joy in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on My altar, for My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered here. Jesus is declaring Himself by establishing and purifying and confirming that this is God's house and it's to be a house of prayer. He's saying, I'm the King. And I'm making this a house of prayer and I'm going to bring all nations to it. Because I'm King over everything and everyone. 
Finally, we have to add in, thirdly, the way he responds to the criticism of the Pharisees clearly signals that Jesus is saying, I'm the king over everything and everyone. They say to him, they get very upset by all that's happened. They know what Jesus has done here. They know the Zechariah's prophecy. They know Isaiah's prophecy. They know the significance of the man riding in on the donkey, the colt of a donkey with garments spread before him. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, there's a little reference that most scholars believe was probably general practice. King Jehu, after a victory, comes riding into Jerusalem and garments are spread in front of him, hailing him as the conquering hero. So, the Pharisees run to Jesus. Do you hear what they're saying? The children are now beginning a chant. Hosanna! Blessed is the Son of David! Do you hear that, Jesus? Implication, put a stop to this. You have allowed yourself to ride into Jerusalem on a colt. Garments spread before you, just like Jehu. Palm branches spread before you. They're announcing Psalm 118, the hallelujah. You've gone into the temple and upset our worship, and you've declared the prophecy of Isaiah over you. Jesus put a stop to this. So their question, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus' response is startling. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I hear what they're saying. And then he quotes from Psalm 8. Some of you know Psalm 8. Psalm 8 begins, How majestic, O Lord, is your name in all the earth. And verse 2 is a section in Psalm 8 in which the psalmist is singing a song about how children and infants, God has ordained praise for himself to come from the mouths of children and infants even. Let me say that again. How majestic is your name in all the earth, O Lord. And then verse 2 talks about how God has ordained that praise would come from the mouths, the lips of children and infants. They would be praising God. Jesus, in response to their criticism, quotes a passage from God's Word, a passage about God speaking about Himself and praise coming to Himself. And Jesus uses that as the explanation for what's happening in front of them. He takes a passage from God's Word in which God talks about Himself And Jesus applies it to Himself. On this day, Jesus declares loudly and clearly that He's the King over everything and everyone. All nations. All people. Certainly, many of them would have thought Him to be an idiot. I suspect more of the officials would have thought of Him as perhaps insane. He's gone over the edge. But whatever the case, they knew he was dangerous, and they knew he was a blasphemer. So I want you to understand clearly, this is a suicide mission. So why does Jesus do this? Let's wrap up. I'm going to suggest at this point that Jesus knows exactly who he is and what his mission was. We talked about this last week. 
By this point in his life, his identity and his mission is firm and secure in his own mind. I want you to know that there's not much written, not much written about the psychology of Jesus. This is kind of surprising to me, but the more seriously scholars take the Bible, you know, the more they read it seriously, the more serious they are about the stories and the instances of the Bible, the less likely they are to talk about Jesus' psychology. A part of that is because we simply don't know. The Bible doesn't give us too much information about Jesus' psychology. For instance, when did Jesus know what he knew about himself? It's a sticky question, isn't it? And it's kind of confusing even to think about, but here's one thing we know for sure. By this point in his life, Jesus knew. He knew exactly who he was, and he knew what his mission was. And the struggle now is, will I be obedient? Will I step in? And he does. Jesus knows now that he is going to, he's on his way to, and he's going to offer himself up He's going to die. Jesus is on a suicide mission. But he's not going to drive into some crowded area with a bomb strapped to his chest and blow himself and many other people up. This is not a suicide mission that will kill others. This is a suicide mission that is meant to give life to others. Jesus is offering himself up for us. And he knows by this point that he really is king over everything and everyone. In fact, it's during this week of his life that follows Palm Sunday. So Palm Sunday, and then we have a week of interaction in Jerusalem. It's a party. It's Passover time. Jerusalem is full of people. All of these become very vivid memories for the disciples. And by the end of that week, the cheers and the hosannas have turned to jeers and curses. And by the end of that week, they're calling for him to be crucified because the Pharisees have railroaded a trumped-up charge and case against Jesus and brought it before the Romans, and the Romans just want to tap this down and keep the peace, so they end up killing this guy that they know is innocent. Jesus is on a suicide mission, and part of that is because he knows, listen, part of that is because he knows that he's the king of everything and everyone. That's why during this week, during this dramatic and climactic week, during that week, Jesus offers up several teachings about the nature of his kingship. Listen, don't miss this, please. The nature of his kingship and the fact that he will come again. That he's not accomplishing everything that is involved with his kingship now, but there's going to be another time when he will come. He, the person of Jesus, will come again. And that time he'll come in a very, very different way. Many of you know the last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, spells out in weird and vivid technicolor these events, events surrounding this, what throughout the centuries Christians have called the second coming of Jesus, the time when He will come again. It's hard to know when you read through the book of Revelation how much of it is metaphorical, how much of it is meant to take. Clearly, I like what Pastor Rick Warren says, you know, concerning that we're not really on the time and date committee, we're on the preparation committee. And that's exactly what's being anticipated in the Palm Sunday event. What Revelation spells out for us is that Jesus came to introduce, to begin. That was the beginning of the end. 
And what Jesus introduced was the beginning of His kingship, the beginning of His reign, what is in in certain places in Scripture called the day of salvation. The time when we can actually approach God and fall on our knees as Alyssa did earlier and bow before the cross of our own will. This is the time when the kingship has been revealed. When Jesus has announced, I'm the king that you were waiting for. And this is the day of salvation. That the period in history when God's patience and God's endurance is open, God's tolerance is open, and we may come to Him and really have a connection with God because of what Jesus Christ has done, there will come a day when He will come again and His kingship will be revealed in full. And the day of salvation at that point will be over. I'm going to read you a paragraph from John Piper. I like the way John Piper puts it. He says, There's a day when He will come again, but not on a donkey. He'll come on a white war horse. And his hand will not be outstretched in invitation, but will be fisted in an act of war. The blood on his hands will not be his own blood, but the blood of his enemies. This is the day of salvation. The second coming of Jesus will be the end of the day of salvation. It will be the end of the day of patience. The end of the day of tolerance. Now is the acceptable hour. Now is the day of salvation. Don't miss meeting King Jesus on the white horse having rejected Him on the donkey. So why is this message for believers, I said at the beginning of today? Well, those who are far from God, as all of us were at some point, those of us who sat, as the psalmist says, in the seat of mockers and scoffers, all of us did at some point, and some of us still struggle not to, Those of us in that seat, we're not going to respond to this message. We respond to what Jesus offered when He walked among us. God's love. God's grace. God's healing. God's hope. This message is for you and I because we're it. And they need to hear. And one day, the day of salvation will end. And Jesus will come again on a white war horse and the time of patience will be over and His enemy's blood will be spilled. He will be king over all. And those who have bowed their knee before the cross, they will be welcomed in. And those who have not will be obliterated. He will destroy suffering. He will destroy sin. He will destroy all of those mechanisms within us that separate us from our true selves and from one another and from Him. And those who have not bowed their knee to Him will be obliterated. We begin the week after Easter here at Gateway, what we call our out season. Let's go out. Let's live. Let's tell. Let's serve. Let's love. little advertisement. Every two or three years, sometimes four years, it's been a couple of years now, I like to, uh, on Easter Sunday, we'll do a break, we'll do a different kind of service, and I will talk about evidence of the resurrection. We're doing that again next Sunday. Now, let's face it, you can probably find something better than what we're going to discuss here on YouTube. However, most of us don't and won't. And it's worth periodically you and I rehearsing the reality of these events 
thinking it through rationally because our faith is based primarily on an historical fact. So let's once again rehearse among ourselves and let's celebrate together next week that it's real, (laughs) that that it really happened. And these are the reasons to believe it. And because of that, we can know that God is involved with us and that Jesus is King over everything and everyone. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I feel powerless before this message. We don't know how to make it real for ourselves unless you make it real for us. Ask that you would seal this in our hearts. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.